Hey, it's Lauren. And before we get into the show, I just want to say my single Road to Glory is out now. If you like this show, I promise you this song is the show in musical form. It's all about overcoming fear, overcoming obstacles, going toward your dreams, and using all the pain you've gone through turning it into purpose and realizing you're better for the suffering you've endured, survived, and turned into your own art and your creativity. It's really a story of the hero's journey. It's a tale of angsty optimism of believing that the best possible thing will happen, but acknowledging the pain along the way. My favorite lyrics from it are, I've got a light inside me even though there's darkness too, and I've been knocked off my feet, but I'm still crawling on my knees. I won't let go on the road to glory. If you won't let go on the road to glory, go ahead, travel to Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music, it is there. It's on like over 35 platforms across the world. Go download it, add it to the queue, and get inspired and ready to tackle the world because you're on the road to glory, honey buns, and I love you. Are you creative? That's a rhetorical question, because of course you are. A creative is anyone who makes something from nothing. Creativity is everywhere and in everyone. And that means you. So what's been stopping your inner creative from bursting out? Probably fear. Fear is part of creating something. It's a real bee. But don't worry, we'll help you get through that. This podcast will be your guide to claim your creativity, redefine your relationship with fear, and build a new life centered around creative expression. You're going to learn tools from people who have found ways to manage life's ups and downs by turning their experience into purpose. Think of this podcast as your very own creative community. This is Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. Hello. Hope you're doing well. Hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving. I did. I went back home to Detroit and spent some time with my mom and dad. And it was really healing, just like it is every time I go home. If you haven't listened to that episode about the creative power of going home or whatever home means to you, definitely check that one out. But I reiterate everything I said that episode. It really is such a great reset for your brain, for your soul. And I also had a really interesting realization for this past home trip because I did something that I very rarely ever do. I did nothing. (laughs) I actually let my body rest and it's a huge, huge struggle for me to ever sit still for any length of time. Even when I'm on vacation, I'm always trying to get stuff done. I'm trying to pump out a song or you know, get ahead on my emails or just do something that I see as being productive. But I actually, I'm very proud of myself because for maybe one of the first times in my life, I recognize that the most productive thing for me to do would be to rest. And it felt wrong in the moment. I'm not going to lie. Even though it felt good to my body because I was so tired, it felt wrong to my soul or not my soul, probably my ego. It felt wrong to my ego. But then I noticed the effects of it today. So I was at work and then after work I was doing my podcast and some music stuff. And 
I just couldn't shake this little feeling all day. And that feeling was happiness and peace. And so, so I can't help but think that there's some sort of direct correlation here between that allowing my body to rest these past four or five days and having such an ease to this day, no matter what hit me, whatever problems came my way, I felt more equipped to handle them because I had some sort of mental clarity from that really nice thing I'd done for my mind, body, and spirit, which was rest. So these, like the month leading up to Christmas is absolutely insane. It's going to be go, 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 but I really encourage you wherever you can find those moments of rest and certainly over the holidays, whatever you celebrate, whether you celebrate, most companies at least have a little lull over the last week of December. Allow yourself to rest because it will do wonders for you creatively and just on a human level. So hopefully that helps. I'm going to continue to try to take my own advice and let my body rest when I can and when I need to let it rest so that I can be better when I need to be on. That's it for the creative check-in today. Now let's get to the guest. James D. Stern is a prolific and award-winning writer, director, producer, and storyteller. Some of his best-known projects from the stage and the screen include The Producers, Hairspray, Stomp, Academy Award-nominated films such as An Education and Hotel Rwanda, and more recently, Netflix's Murder Mystery, and coming up, Amazon Studios' Bliss. James, or as I call him throughout the interview, Jim, has a remarkable resume. I mean, it's truly mind-blowing what he's done in his career and continues to do. But his story didn't start out quite so mind-blowing. He came from a family that didn't have any background in the arts, but he discovered his love of theater in the third grade. And from there, his heart was set on fire, and he continued to pursue his passion in college. After college, he went to New York thinking he'd be the next Hal Prince. What actually happened was years of struggle until he eventually decided to produce something in his home city of Chicago, which led to an amazing opportunity in New York and an eventual failure that led him to swear off ever working in theater again. Thank God fate had a different plan for him, because he was approached to produce a weird little show known as Stomp, which became the longest-running show in the history of the New York stage. That was his true big break, and today he has over 30 films and 20 Broadway shows under his belt. I wanted to have Jim on the show first because he's a fellow Midwesterner, and it's always so encouraging to hear from someone who came from a similar background and has wild success. But also because he's managed to pursue so many different careers at once by following his instinct, working hard, believing in himself, and finishing what he starts. From our conversation, you'll learn how to emotionally recover from failure, why no one knows anything and it's all okay, his tips for new filmmakers, why you should read the reviews, how to believe in yourself when the odds are stacked against you, and the key to powerful storytelling. Now here he is, Jim Stern. So, Jim, thank you so much for being on Unleash Your Inner Creative. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. My pleasure. You know, when I saw University of Michigan on your resume, even though our schools are rivals, I lit up because I'm like, he's a Michigander. We got we to gotta talk. All, the mid- all Midwest all the time. Yes. And I know you grew up in Chicago. 
I'm curious, though, like when you trace the lines of your life and you look back at yourself as a young man or maybe a small child, when was the first time you realized you were creative? That's a great question. <laughs> I think the first time I thought that I was really creative was, was, you know, God, I haven't actually ever said this out loud, was probably when I was in a play in third grade and I had to improv and I just started going off on stage and, and I haven't stopped since. So um, I think that I, I played the Mad Hatter and I did my own, there was no script, it was just me and I just was talking and, you know, so I, I think that that's probably... I mean, my I came from a family that really appreciated the arts, but nobody else was, but nobody was in the arts. It was supposed mm. to be looked at from afar. Yeah, and so I I had a similar experience, and also I'm a thespian as well. Right. And so, how did that affect you, though? Like not having anyone to be like, oh, that that's what I want to do, because it's one thing to have. First of all, were your parents supportive of you picking this path? My parents were supportive of, were very supportive of me doing things before it was a career Mm. (laughs) and then then a little less so (laughs) so how did you deal with that turmoil of naturally wanting to please your parents but also knowing this other thing was calling you psychoanalysis no um (laughs) (laughs) which we highly recommend exactly we're big therapy proponents here yeah exactly (laughs) um i think that it was hard you know i mean i think that i was very two very, very accomplished brothers who are much older than I am. And and I think that, you know, sort of following in their footsteps to some degree, you know, in terms of needing to be sort of accomplishing things. And I think that I was probably stayed sort of, you know, pretty low-key in the shadows through high school. But I got to college, things started really blossoming for me at Michigan. And I produced all the student theater at Michigan, um, which wow. sort of surprised people because I didn't sort of see that coming. And I mean, before that, I was equally interested in sports as I was in theater, still super interested in sports as well. But in Michigan, things really changed. And then all of a sudden, I decided that I wanted to do it as a career, and that sort of created its own kind of issues. I went to New York off of college thinking I was going to be the next Hal Prince in theater and <laughs> found out that, that actually every school in the country had someone who thought that they were going to be the next Hal Prince. So it became a little harder than I than I uh, reckoned right away. You know, I kind of struggled. You know, I, I spent a couple years working in the theater in New York, then a couple years where I tried my best to work in my father's business and then, mm. um, then went to graduate school, which was the great, you know, the great escape, and then, then stayed in New York for a long time. And then finally made my way to Chicago and Los Angeles. So you went to your father's business for a while. What was the decision like to enter your dad's business? And then how did you have that conversation when you exited it? Well, I was a coward, a proud coward. So I didn't actually have that conversation about exiting. I had the conversation about getting an MBA at Columbia. So it was, <laughs> so it was, it was, I didn't actually just, you know, I, I took the coward's way out and I went to graduate school. So working I, I never wanted to work in nonprofit theater particularly, which meant that I needed to work in the for-profit theater, Broadway, et cetera, or, or in film. So it made some sense that I would sort of try and get a, a handle on business and, and a background in that. So I sort of sucked it up, and I, I wasn't terribly useful, you know, those first couple of years out of college. So it was not like I was walking away from some fantastic <laughs> opportunities. I was sort of doing a, a bit of everything, but I but I thought that it was I, I was sort of trying and 
and New York was had become a kind of hard place to live, I think. So that sort of took me back to Chicago, but not necessarily for the reasons of creativity, more for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk a lot about how the 20s are, I mean, for me, I was in a personal fight club the whole time, you know, just trying to figure it out, barely standing on my own two feet, getting knocked over, getting back up. If you could give anyone who's in their 20s right now listening some advice on how to survive and stay as true to themselves as they possibly can, what would it be and why? You know, it's like the old Woody Allen joke, you know, in Annie Hall where he he starts the movie out. No, he he ends the movie where he goes to the doctor, you know, and he says, doctor, I have a problem. And the doctor said, what's wrong? He says, well, my brother's crazy. He (laughs) says, I'm sure your brother's not really crazy. And he says, no, no, my, my brother's crazy. He says, well, give me an example. He says... My brother thinks he's a chicken. And he says, the doctor says, thinks he's a chicken? And what he says, yeah, he thinks he's a chicken. And the doctor says, my God, he is crazy. Why don't you have him committed? And he says, and what he says, well, I would, but I need the eggs. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the point of the, the joke is this is not something to do unless you need the eggs, right? If you need the eggs, then you're going to stay in it. I mean, it's it's a hard... What I say to people is if they want to be in theater and they want to be an actor, then do you want to be an actor in the Des Moines, Iowa Regional Theater? If the answer is yes, then you should be an actor. If the answer is no, I want to be in the latest and greatest Netflix series, then the answer is don't do it. Because at the end of the day, the journey has to be worth the experience. Like, you know, if you're going to be producing a movie, then you better like or at least be able to really tolerate and get kind of high off of being on you know on set at three in the morning and drinking stale coffee to stay awake and feeling terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't think for an instant that this is going to be so, that there's anything that's sort of glorious in this. It's got you have to approach it as as a job like any other. And the glory for me is that I like telling stories. And if I can see a story coming together, then I then that's that's its own high for me. So I think that that's the kind of thing that I guess I would want to say. And then if the answer is yes, I'm I'm down with all that then you just have to never give up and never say no because you will get kicked in the teeth countless times. It's just, I mean, it's a hard profession with a million people trying to do it. And the thing about this profession is that there's no barriers to entry, right? So it's not like you'll get a better job at law firm X if you've gone to Harvard Law School than if you've gone to Yale Law School than if you've gone to University of Chicago Law School, right? But in any case, everyone is just, hustle and and you got to read everything you got to see everything people come into my office and they've never seen a howard hawks movie i don't get it mm-hmm. i mean don't come into my office i haven't seen a howard hawks movie does it have anything to do with what we do today actually it kind of does because it set foundations right absolutely it's it's the antecedent to where, to where we are i mean i saw every old movie every single old movie i was going to the, i was doing that four times a week i mean i you know i saw every play i was in the theater ushering anything just to absorb myself in story because at the end of the day the modes of delivery be it warner brothers or or amazon or netflix or now quibi which is you know this you know company which i think is going to take over the world one day doing 10 to 15 minute segments it's all just modes of distribution but story is everything. So getting back to your story, how did you go from that MBA program to then 
doing this amazing career that you now have? Psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. No, okay, perfect. <laughs> so all we need to do is get in therapy? Perfect. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm halfway there. Yeah, you're excellent. So <laughs> it was a slog, you know? I mean, it's it was a slog for, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really... I knew that I was, at least I thought, that I was really talented. And I don't think I ever questioned that for whatever reason. How did you have that knowing? That's a great question. I'm not sure exactly. I had an internal belief that, I'll tell you what I thought, what I did, which I thought was actually a really smart thing, is, you know, people would, friends of mine would go and they'd see like a great movie and they'd get inspired by it. I did the opposite. I saw the worst stuff in the world and thought, someone's getting paid to do that. Well, I got to be, I mean, I may not be Francis Ford Coppola. I may not be, you know, Martin Scorsese, but I'm as good as that guy. I know I'm as, at least, I mean, that movie's terrible. At least I'm good as that guy. And I think that in a weird way, I mean, I would do these sorts of little tricks for myself so that I didn't live in doubt because it was really hard getting started. And then the other thing that was interesting in my trajectory is that that I've been banging my head against the wall in New York for for years. Um, I came out to Los Angeles for a, a spell. Had to go to Chicago to help my father with something. And when I was there, these friends of mine who were at Second City wrote a show, and I was helping them develop it. You know, then I thought, okay, well, I was through in Chicago, and I was going to go back to LA and. Instead of doing, instead of running back to LA, I thought, you know what? I haven't actually produced anything since college. Why not just try and do this and see, you know, and like, okay, so I'll stay here for another six months. Big deal. What am I really going back for? And it was a really small show. Well, the show ended up blowing up and like becoming this huge hit in Chicago. So next thing I know, people are clamoring for me to take it to New York, throwing money at me. And all of a sudden that actually launched my career in a completely backwards way. I mean, I was in Chicago feeling miserable that I was not in New York or LA. I was in the middle of nowhere. I was doing a show that I was, you know, that I assumed that nobody would see, but I finished it. I think the one thing that's the other thing that I would say to people, you know, who listen is finish what you start, no matter what it is. If you're going to write a script, finish it. If you hate it and you hate the process of it, I don't care. Finish it. It's the best thing you can do for yourself. The idea of finishing things is so important because once you get into the habit of finishing things, you'll always finish things. And eventually you'll do something that's that people want and that you'll get you know you'll have the opportunity to to do it professionally, but you never get the opportunity if you stop things halfway through. And so I finished that. And then all of a sudden I was going to New York. And then the next thing that happened was there was a show, which I really liked, um, a Lanford Wilson play called Redwood Curtain with Jeff Daniels. And I was asked to be one of the producers of it because I met somebody while I was doing the other show. Worked on that, got phenomenal reviews, and then lost everything. Because a week later, this little show called Angels in America opened on Broadway. And so I was, we were toasting, you know, ourselves with champagne that it was like this huge hit was going to win the Tony Award and everything else. And then we just got obliterated. So that was a lesson. And then I decided I'm done with theater. I'm not doing theater anymore. This is, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? This is like, there's no rhyme or reason to this. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, went back to Chicago and I was like trying to sort of figure it out. And then these friends of mine said, you were so great to work with. I know you don't want to do this anymore. 
But we'd really like you to look at this one last thing. And I said, I'm out. I'm not going to do it. They said, let's, let, let us send you a five-minute clip. And I said, all right. And they sent me this clip, and it was these guys banging on garbage cans and making noise out of found objects. And I said, well, damn, that's cool. And I just said yes, and that was Stomp. And it became, you know, the biggest hit in the – it's the longest-running show in the history of the New York stage. And once I, once I was producing Stomp, things got a lot easier. Lots of amazing lessons that you just laid down for us here, Jim. Okay, I love the one that's just start. Start and then actually finish as well. Always finish. So powerful. Now, I think sometimes in life and especially in our creative journey, there's a moment, there's a fork in the road moment where you can either decide like, hey, I'm going to blow everything up and just like choose a different path or it's kind of the universe testing you to see how bad you really want it. Right. It seems like that failure that you had in New York was your how bad do you really want it moment. How did you decide? I know you said you thought it was cool, but like, how did you tune into your gut in that moment and know that you should say yes to stomp? You know, I had encouragement to do so by those around me at the time. And I, I felt like if you're going to stop doing this, then stop doing this with, you know, in, in a way which is just cool. Nobody thought stomp would work. I mean, now, of course, it seems when something's a huge hit, it always looks easy in, in retrospect. But, but at that time, those guys were street performers who had never performed more than three days in any, in any city. So everybody in New York passed. I just didn't know it because I was living in Chicago. And no one told me that like I was the, you know, there was like the French Foreign Legion looking for a volunteer and everybody takes a step backwards. And, the, <laughs> and the, you know, the schmuck who's, you know, in the, you know, who hasn't you know, noticed is they say you and then you're, then they're off to the front. That's what it was like. And so, you know, I do think that you know, again, as maybe Woody who said this, you know, that 90% of life is just showing up. Eventually, everybody gets a chance. The question is, are you ready or you're lucky or whatever when the chance comes? And I have gotten chances and not taken advantage of them too. And then you play the what-if game, of course, but you that, that game will drive you insane. Yeah. But in the case of Stomp, I was ready and I said, okay. And, and if it had been a disaster and hadn't worked, then I would have moved to Los Angeles and just forgotten about theater and just gone to film. I mean, it was, I was, film was interesting to me because there was a profession to it. Theater, there's no profession. You know, it's like the old, the old adage, you know, you can get rich, but you can't make a living, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, because it's just, you do these. Can you explain that a little bit more for someone who maybe isn't as well versed in these worlds? Well, the thing about the theater is the shows cost quite a bit. If they work, they can be very, very profitable. If they don't work, then it's not like... Like if I produce a movie and I finance a movie, let's say the movie costs $10 million. The actual at-risk money is probably two. And if you've done it right, it's probably not even two. It's probably a lot less than that. But a Broadway show, if it costs $10 million, what the, at- the at-risk portion is $10 million. It's gone in a heartbeat, like all of it. So the reason why there's, you go to any Broadway show and there's like 15 producers on is because no one wants to lose more than a certain amount of money. So yeah, you can get rich, but it's no way to make a living. There's no, you can't get a job in the theater. I mean, I mean, you can, of course, but, but it's not sustainable, basically. It's not sustainable. Yeah. It's not. That's why every, produ- almost, almost every producer on Broadway has, it's not their real job. Yeah. It's a side hustle. It's a side hustle. Yeah. What actually goes into producing a play? 
Like I know, I know because I produce podcasts, but I have to assume it's very, very different. But like producing to me is just getting shit done. But that can vary of what shit you need to get done. So like, I'm curious what actually goes into producing a play. Well, everything. Yeah. I mean, because when you produce a show on Broadway or, or even off Broadway, you're everything, including the distributor, mm-hmm. right? So you're the studio. You, you, you raise the money, you find, you know, decide what you want to do. You help cast it, you hire the director and, and you have to market it and you have to market it every week while it's, while it's running. So it's, Producing on Broadway is a complete rush. I mean, if you're like, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so that's that's adrenaline, right? You know? There's and nothing like theater. No, it's really it's immediate. The it's really immediate, and it's also everything rides in a single night. You know, nobody who has any sense should do it. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't. What you know, I've been talking about this a lot lately because I just realized theater people are cut from a different cloth. What do you think it is that differentiates a theater person from a normal person? Well, the big difference between theater people and film people is that theater people completely do it for love. I mean, you know, um, I directed a documentary called Every Little Step about a, the creation of a chorus line. And, you know, the dominant song, What I Did for Love, that's true. Because you can't make a living. Everyone's suffering. If you're an actor, you know, you're a singer-dancer, you get in some show finally, and then, you know, you all those years of training, you finally get in the show, and then it closes in a night. I mean, it's like it's it's insane. So you work in the film business, you have a job, you have a you know, place to go. I mean, it's a completely different thing. It's like, it's like a, it's a whole industry here. I think that's the biggest difference. So how did you transition from doing these highly, highly successful musicals and plays into producing film? Well, I started by directing film, and I really, really wanted to direct. I mean, that's that's sort of, that was always my mission. I just happened to be really good at the other as well. What's that like for you? Like when you're, because I have a, a thing like that too in my own creative path where you have one thing that you wanted, and then you find this complementary skill set along the way, and it kind of takes you down this whole different path. How did you deal with that discomfort at times? The reason why Hal Prince was sort of an icon for me or a role model was because he had done it. He had the biggest producer on, on Broadway, then he became the biggest director on Broadway. So I, I, I always had that in my head. And I was somebody who never wanted to be beholden to other people to get hired for a job. So that led me to business and producing so that I had a hedge against not being able to get a job as a director. The way to direct back in those days, certainly, when you know independent film was a little more understandable than it is today with the advent of streaming, is you had to write and you had to have a script. And when I had enough success in the film business, I really focused my attention in a pretty hard way on on how to you know break into the film world. I started going to Sundance every year. I started to you know just try and educate myself as much as I could. I wasn't trained in film. And eventually, I wrote a script that and sent it around, sent it to a you know a very prominent casting director who's still a great casting director, Mary Renew. And you know, after six months of like letting it sit on her desk, she read it and thought it was great and wanted to cast it. And all of a sudden, I had this really major casting director, and and then once we got some, and she knew you know some people. I mean, I didn't know anybody. Like you know, live from Mars. I was living in Chicago, and I was. You know, I'd written this script, and then Mary gave it to 
a friend of hers, Adam Deldeo, a great executive who now runs documentaries for Netflix. And Adam really liked it. And, you know, we got this cast attached. And next thing we knew, we were making, I was making a movie. I didn't know, I didn't, I mean, I had this amazing cast. I didn't know how to direct. I didn't know what I was doing. But I had this bizarre faith that I was going to get through it. Again, I figured that, like, well, what's the worst that can happen? I, I was always very good at thinking, like, I'll be okay. Right. I will always be okay, not just in terms of my ability to, like, put a roof over my head, but uh, emotionally, that I was going to be – that I'd be okay. And that the only way that I would not be okay is if I did not do it. And um, and then at the same time that that happened, these people were trying to do a, an IMAX film on Michael Jordan. Um, and I was living in Chicago. I was very connected with the Bulls and the organization. So they came to me to ask if I could help navigate a path to Michael. They had raised all this money. And I said, well, yes, if I direct it. So um, great negotiation tactic. <laughs> yeah, right. Really? Yeah. No, that's I really yeah. I admire that. So, and so we we you know we worked out sort of a compromise. It was a co-directing thing, and then I set out. So then all of a sudden I was directing two films. The one that I wrote, it's the Rage, had you know ultimately got some great reviews, some terrible reviews. Got both. Uh, the Jordan thing was just a monster hit, and was you know sort of one of the biggest IMAX films ever at that point. And next thing I know, I was like, okay, well, now I've directed a couple of films. I'm a director. That's when I decided to move out, you know, move out here to Los Angeles permanently. That's really cool. Now, with the reviews you mentioned, I've heard people say, you know, you can't buy into the good reviews because then you have to also buy into the bad ones. What's your take on reviews? Do you let them dictate how you feel about yourself? Are you able to, like, just take them in as information? How do you view them? I view them, and this is really important because everyone's been to a dinner party. So you go to a dinner party, there's 10 people. Everyone's talking about some film at a dinner party. How many times do 10 people agree on a film at a dinner party? Like never. Like never. Mm -hmm. So why on earth does anybody think that critics are all going to agree on a film you do? I mean, that's all it is. All you hope is that the one who agrees with you is a paper that you like. (laughs) You hope that it's the New York Times that that likes you more than the New York Post or whatever. But you got to just want to fucking double down mm-hmm. if someone if someone you know if someone says something negative you've you've got to because first of all they may goddamn be wrong i mean they, there's as much chance of them being wrong as there is about them being right so why would you let somebody else define you you've got to define yourself i totally disagree with that whole thing about oh don't you know if you let the good reviews make you feel better then the bad reviews make you feel worse Fuck that. The good reviews should make you feel great and throw out the bad reviews. I mean, life is hard. Celebrate every day, every moment that you can because, you know, you don't know what tomorrow is going to – you're going to – all these people are going to deny themselves pleasure? I think it's crazy. That's a really solid point. When I first heard that, I heard um, Pete Yorn say that. You know, he's a, yeah. a singer-songwriter. And I thought it was so profound. But it's true. I like, think if it's, it, I think it's ridiculous. If it gives you a little bit of a jolt, and like it, like you said, this path is so brutal, you know, enjoy the fruits of your labor when you can. Because sometimes they're very few and far in between. There, there's <laughs> always going to be something, you know, that's going to be negative tomorrow. And there's going to be something positive. Just, it's a ride. You just got to understand that. Feel good when you can. You know, Phil Jackson of the Bulls used to say, you know, never be so high in victory and so low in defeat. I, was, I mean, I love Phil. I always thought it was garbage, though. Mm-hmm. No, be really high in victory. 
and and forget to and for, you know what and then give yourself give yourself a moment where you can you know where you can feel some pain and then but but make sure that it's a finite amount of time so that that you don't you know overstay your welcome on feeling bad you've talked about sports a lot and you are a part owner in the bulls is that correct yeah that's that's right okay so First of all, obviously, it's now part of your profession, but when it wasn't, and even now, how has having that hobby helped inspire you as an artist? Obsession. It's not a hobby. Okay. Obsession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm full on. I'm committed in a way which is probably unhealthy. I think they're really, really connected. I think that sports are stories, too. And I've done sports movies. I, I try and not do... I've never done an, I've never done a fiction sports story i've done i've done documentary sports stories three of them you know i think sports is the greatest story in the world because you don't know the ending Mm. you know and so i mean you know you you know it's like there's nothing else out there i mean you know you can go see a romantic comedy you're probably pretty clear on what's going to happen at the end the question is going to be the journey but in sports you don't know the ending so i i love it and i love you know i like competition and things like that so um i also just love the beauty of the games so I love it all, I, you know. And the connection, you know, that I'm not a huge sports person, but I remember the first time I acknowledged how powerful it was. I was sitting in the stands at Michigan State, and we won the game. And everyone, like people I didn't know, were hugging me. Oh, yeah. and, we, and I'm like, oh, this is why people yeah. love this. Well, there's a, it's the connection. You know, I directed a film for HBO called Sport in America, Our Defining Stories. And before my dad passed, I interviewed he and my mom about their lives. And my dad told this extraordinary story that when he was a little, little kid, he was taken to the World Series and sat behind home plate. And on that day, Babe Ruth called his shot, which is probably sort of the most famous moment in the history of baseball. And he was probably the last person alive who had actually been in the ballpark at that moment. And he remembered it vividly. And I took that clip and you know, set it to music from the natural, the natural, and I showed it to HBO, and I said there must be a million people who have these stories. And Sports Illustrated came on board; they put it on their cover, and I interviewed people all over the country who sent in their stories to, to Sports Illustrated. And the stories were the most remarkable stories that you can ever imagine. A woman sort of believing that uh, if a guy who was sort of her idol who had been hurt and down in the dumps won the World Series. She could be cured of her cancer, and he was, and he did. He hit a home run to win the World Series, and she got cured of her cancer. I mean, it was like crazy stories. And the connections, which could have been from 9-11 or the Boston Marathon bombings, or you know, and, and how we grieve and how we celebrate together, all of that comes through in sports. It's all part of, it's all part of the fabric of connection, which is a very big part of my work. I just finished my new documentary called Giving Voice, which is about the August Wilson monologue competition. So August Wilson, our greatest African-American playwright, wrote Fences, many other things. Across the country, he died at the age of 60, across the country, mostly disadvantaged youth in schools and in, you know, in drama clubs or whatever, um, learn a monologue of his, and they compete for the chance to ultimately go to Broadway. So there's 12 cities, and there's thousands of kids who do this. In Chicago, there's 400, there's 400 kids. In LA, there's 700. I mean, there's in New York, there's... I mean, and it goes in Chicago from 400 to 200 to 60, down to 20, down to two. And the last two in each city go to Broadway to, to compete. And that movie is all about, it's about the connection between this incredibly intellectual, 
playwright who's no longer with us and these 17-year-old kids who don't really know who he is. And yet in the performing of these monologues, find a connection that they didn't think even existed and a kind of purpose and a kind of understanding of their own lives. So, you know, for me, humanity is sort of everything. You know, whether it's August Wilson or it's Michael Jordan, humanity and how we celebrate it is sort of what makes the world go around. And I think it's probably more significant today than ever before. Would you say that's a through line in every story you tell? I would like that to be the case. I'm not sure it's, and you know, even if I'm doing a a documentary on Trump supporters, it's still the same thing. You know, I mean, I'm still trying to find the humanity. And I mean, in that case, I was very much, very consciously trying to be sort of the anti-Michael Moore. So I was trying to really Mm -hmm. sort of understand what they were thinking, what they were going through, why they were gravitating towards a guy who clearly they had very little in common with, although they thought that they did. And so there is connection in even a film like that where I'm so far on the other side of the political spectrum as they are. Yeah, and that was your film, American Chaos. Right. Which, did you start making that before the election, did I read, or was it after the election? I made that film starting the second he got the requisite number of delegates to secure the Republican nomination. So six months before the, well, yeah, six months before the election. Because you knew that he was going to win. I thought he was going to win. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was, was the biggest takeaway from doing that movie? The biggest takeaway in American Chaos, well, there's many, but I think that there, I think that one really significant one, which gets overlooked, is that we have such a default position to generalize. So Trump supporters are all X. Uh, liberals are all Y. And it's completely untrue. I mean, the people that I talk to, mostly were all supporting him for completely different reasons. Somebody, you know, in Florida, obsession with terrorism. In Arizona, Mexican border, obviously, obsession with immigration. In West Virginia, clearly obsession with coal. So I think that in if there was an overarching common theme it was being looked down upon but but you know this idea that like oh they're all racists i did not find that and i thought it was i thought that that was i think that it's really important not to put labels on people because those labels will come right back at you so i mean there's gonna be a boomerang effect and i'm not saying that therefore these people are gonna like become your best friend and and, you know and vote the way you want them to because they won't and their priorities are going to be different. So the fact that the world is choking from a lack of progressive policy on climate change does not matter to those people. They don't see that. That's our that that may be my priority. It's not their priority. And you know, I think it's the thing about America is it's the least homogenous country on the planet. And that mm-hmm. gets and people don't talk about that very much. So Germany is a more homogenous society than America is. It's much older. Even a gigantic country like Russia, even a gigantic country like China is more homogenous than America is. So what does Florida really have in common with North Dakota? Not very much. Well, we're all our own little cultures, and I think we don't talk about that enough. You know, obviously we're the United States, but each state has its own culture. Right, and so what's what exacerbated by that is the fact that there's one election in the country, which is 50 elections, right? So every election we have in America is majority is majority wins, except for the presidency. So that means there's 50 elections, and that becomes 
a complication, although it's a simple idea that seems to get overlooked, although it's getting overlooked a little bit less now because of the last election when Trump lost by three million votes and still won. (laughs) I'd love to get your take on how people can approach those conversations with people they disagree with, because I think another tragedy of what's going on in our country right now with the divisiveness is that we're not talking to each other because we have categorized one side is good and one side is bad. Whatever side we belong to is good and the other one's bad. How can we have those conversations? Well, I think that the, you know, look, I mean, the the conversations will always be frustrating. Don't kid yourself. You Mm -hmm. know I mean? I, I could only shoot American chaos for three or four days at a time. And then I had to take a break because I found it so upsetting. But I think that you have to come at the viewpoint that people are rational. They are not irrational. And so therefore, if that's your, if you have that as a theory, right, people are rational, then it's really important to find out why they are in their rational self approaching problems in a way which is different than you. So therefore, it's not, it's not to say like, you know, you numb nut, don't you know that climate change <laughs> is going to kill you or that more deaths by gun in this country than anywhere on the planet, what the hell's wrong with you? The issue is to say, tell me why XYZ, you know, policy is important to you. I, let, help me to understand it. I mean, the thing that I always Genuine did, curiosity. Genuine curiosity and, and leaning in. I love that. So to get back to your career a little bit and your path, um, I read this really awesome article about you that talked about the process of making murder mystery. And the writer of murder mystery talked about how the process took 10 years or over 10 years. 10 years. And you never once gave up. And he said he had given up in himself at times, but you never once gave up. Uh, That made me think you must be an incredibly patient person. Is that correct? (laughs) Um, I think I'm really dogged. You know, I don't know how patient I am. I think patience is overrated as a <laughs> virtue. I, I think that, I think if I love something, I will stick with it. How? How do you stick with it in those uncomfortable moments when you're getting door after door slammed in your face? What's the practical skill set you can give someone else? Because like you said... It only takes one person to say yes. Yes. You know, so I, I think that... My dad was basically a salesman, you know, who, you know, went around the country selling these products that he created and took him 10 years of almost going out of business to sell anything. And it was like, but he never stopped, you know, and I don't, I just think that it's in my DNA to some degree. And I think that, I think it's helpful if you believe in the the movie you're trying to get made, right? I mean, I really loved the script murder mystery it's great and we were also very the other thing about it was it was very close to getting made several times so therefore it wasn't like i think that's that's underrated in the story is how close i mean if i had just if people just thought it was a terrible script and nobody wanted to do it then i don't think that i would have been like swinging you know my baseball bat at the door for 10 <laughs> years i don't think but on the other hand you know it went through a lot of different iterations of cast and and directors and and it got close to getting made a few times. So I think that because of that, I felt like that you just got to keep going. And I think that William Goldman in his famous book, Profession, you know, Adventures in the Screen Trade, the first, his first chapter, he says, the most important thing that you can remember about the screen trade is that nobody knows anything. No one knows anything anywhere. 
is what I found out. And you, you wouldn't even believe, I mean, you would because you've worked in this business for so long, but it's kind of interesting to me as I grow in my career, how people at the top still feel like they don't know anything. Oh my God, it's so true. You know, when I did this Broadway musical Leap of Faith, Alan Menken, who's written many, many great shows, wrote the music. And the show is really good and it completely bombed. I mean, it just, and it was sort of a disaster. And I and I was talking with my partner, one of my partners, Tom Vertel, is one of the best producers on Broadway. Between he and I, we've done a lot of stuff. And Tom, particularly. And Tom looked at me and just shook his head and said, the great and terrible thing about our business is just when you think you know everything, it teaches you you know nothing. <laughs> and you have to embrace that. You got to embrace it. You know, you got to be, you do have to be okay with that. I mean, that was the thing that screwed up, you know, leap of faith was that the producing was bad. I screwed it up. I opened the show at the wrong time. We didn't recover from it. It was, there was a couple other mistakes. I thought I knew everything. We had like the best producing team on Broadway. We were all like super experienced, but at the time it made sense. But when you look back on it, those mistakes were right there. How did you emotionally recover from that? Went to see a basketball game the next night. I, uh... I think that was probably particularly challenging, but but I also look. I have two great kids, you know, who need attention. I have other pro- other projects which are also kids that need attention. I have my own work as a writer and a director that needs attention. You pick yourself. I mean, you got to pick yourself up, and you know, you give yourself one, two, three days to grieve, and then you move on. I love that you mentioned your kids because I think a lot of us have in our head like oh, I have to wait until this moment to have my kids or I have to wait until this moment to have kids. But what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that having kids actually can become your motivator and put things into perspective for you when you are on such a vigorous path. What has it been for you? They're they're the reason to do things, you know. I mean, I mean, they're, you know, it's like my my daughter thinks I'm crazy that, you know, that, you know, that uh, Hillary Clinton is not going to be the first female president. And I say, well, got on the plane with me and I'm going to show you why, mm. you know, and so and let's see what happens, you know. And so if I'm going to do a, a show on the Brooklyn Net, the, you know, the, the, how the Brooklyn Nets are building a team that should be, you know, in competing for a championship next year, you know, I want Satchel to be part of that. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's I think that we're not an island, you know, we're not islands. I mean, and I think that, it, and I think that, and again, it's about connection. And so that's a great motivator. So I want to talk about something you do, which is financing films. Hmm. How does this work? Teach me your ways, Jim. Well, it doesn't <laughs> work the same as it did. Okay. So that's, I mean, it's, you know, the, the world has changed with the advent of streaming. And financing independent films made sense because what we did, if you financed a film like Looper, it costs X, not inexpensive. But you set it up in such a way that you were selling foreign, you were selling distribution rights to foreign territories, right? So the, the distribution rights to Germany were worth X and France were worth Y and England were worth, you know, uh, A, whatever. So at the end of that, you, you look at, if the, if the budget's, you know, whatever, called 35 million, and by the time you're through with that, you've, accumulated about $25 million in foreign sales promises, which is based off the fact that you have, in that case, Joe Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, and a script that people really loved. 
And now what you do is you then get a tax credit for shooting in Louisiana primarily. And then you get some help from shooting in China, which we did on that one. So now all of a sudden you have like $5 million against U.S. So the real at risk is only $5 million, at which point you have, a, you, know, you have a thriller with Bruce Willis. You got to feel, or at least I did at the time, that it was going to be worth more than the $5 million that was at risk. That's all changed now. The reason it's changed is because the reason why Germany and France and England and Spain and all those countries were giving you that money was because their foundation, their firewall, if you will, was local television, right? So they knew that they could offload the movies, even if it didn't work, to local television for what they had paid for it. The problem today is that local television in all these markets has gotten savaged by streamers. It's gotten savaged by Netflix and Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't mean that you can't still do that because you can, and there's some very good companies that are still doing that. But it's happening much less now than it ever did before, and so it's it's a more it's more complicated. So right now, you know, you have in a weird way, the entertainment industry is closer to the old studio model than it's been in my entire career, because you have these gigantic companies like Netflix and Amazon and now Disney and and Apple and and soon Quibi, billions and billions of dollars are they're they're pouring into content, but they are financing things and they are owning things. And so it's so people are taking fees and just sort of glad to be able to produce stories, but not necessarily financing the way we did. Wow. That is may, way more complicated than I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I figured it would be complicated, but that's like yeah, next level. That, that's so whole, much to think about. Yeah, that's a little bit of a, I know it's a lot. It's a lot. To how do you on. like? How do you get the money though? You're saying like I get money from Germany. Like, do where? How do you go to the person in Germany and? Oh well, at that point when I was doing that, it was through foreign sales companies, okay. right? So I wasn't doing that. I had a foreign sales company that was doing that, who I was working with. Wow. Because right? I I didn't make those those uh, calls myself. Got it. Okay. So what would be your advice to someone who's a young independent filmmaker right now on how to approach that? Just self-finance? No, I would say first and foremost, write a script you need, you need, not that you want to do, but that you need to do. So that's the first thing. Get a script. Everything is about the story you're trying to tell. Once you have that, then, you know, it's a then there's a you know then the question is do you finance it yourself do you you know take it to people and you know who are streamers to do it for you i mean it's 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 a complicated dance i mean if you if you're going to do it yourself then obviously you need to make it as cheap as possible and at the end of the day the story will always win out and will propel you a lot more so than any kind of technical wizardry that you may have so try and tell a story don't be scared of it being emotional. I think that the more that it's specific and personal, the better, because that's how things are going to sort of pop off the page, especially when someone's a younger artist. Beautiful. I mean, yes, yeah, story is key. If the story doesn't make you feel deeply, then what's the point? <laughs> yeah, I think you have a better chance of getting people's attention and getting and getting performance if if the story has some creative heft. Right. One thing I will say is that it's a great joy of being a producer is working with directors who you get on with, who you really respect. So when I worked with David Lowry on Old Man with a Gun, 
you know, he was one of those guys and he had wrote this beautiful script, which I loved. I always love stories about con artists and the chance to do a movie where Robert Redford, one of my heroes, I mean, not just a hero from his, from acting, but also a hero from directing, from, you know, his environmental work, from the creation of the, of the American independent film industry. I mean, Redford is, you know, is a touchstone for everything, uh, politics. So the chance to like have Redford give a kind of homage to two of my favorite films of all time, The Sting and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid, was you know, like being a kid in a candy store for me. So that was that was a wonderful, wonderful experience of being able to work with Redford, watch David work and his process, and as somebody who directs also, to see how he goes about things was great. In the case of Bliss, which we just finished with writer-director Mike Cahill. Mike is, you know, one of my dearest friends in the world, and, and we have a kind of partnership now sort of sprouting up where I'll be producing his films. It just was a joy from start to finish. I mean, that's like... And, and that's a very interesting situation because particularly in the case of Bliss, much more so than Old Man and the Gun, it's a very hard movie. It's a movie with it's a movie with, that stars Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek you don't really know what's going on. They're either living in a simulation or they're drug addicts, and you're really mm. not sure which, which which one which which it is. It's Owen Wilson, but in a way you're not accustomed to seeing him. It's not a comedy, although there's moments of levity. And the fact that Amazon came in to finance that, I mean, it's a very tricky movie. I'm not sure we could have gotten it done in any other way unless a company like Amazon said yes to it. And so we shot it in Los Angeles, and we shot it in Croatia. I was very lucky that we shot in Los Angeles because I was editing my documentary, giving voice in the morning, and then running to the set all day. And then you know, and so I'd be on set till about one. I'd come home, go to sleep, get up at seven, then watch everything the editors on the documentary had done, and then you know, then meet with them and give them notes on their day, and then go to the set. How did you keep yourself sane during that kind of schedule? I'm really good with it's again. I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie, so I think that I'm, I have a harder time keeping myself sane when there's less to do than when there's more to do. Mm. And how do you keep yourself sane when there's less to do? <laughs> That's a good question. Gets back to psychoanalysis. No, um, <laughs> I, sports is a big help. You know, and uh, you do sports yourself as well as watch. I play tennis. I work out. Yeah, and I and I watch you know too much basketball. But it's hard, you know. I mean, I I'm not somebody who I'm better when I'm working than when I'm not working, mm-hmm. you know. And I I also write, so if I'm not working, then that's that should be time that I can spend writing. And God knows I have to try and find the next thing to do all the time. But I'm much better when I have projects that are actually happening. That's that's where I'm sure that my that's my when best. you feel good. Yeah, and I'm also my my most efficient and productive. So you talked earlier about you went to get your MBA because you felt like you were a coward. But if we look at this trajectory of your life, it's pretty clear that you're the farthest thing from a coward. Time and time again, you've made really, really tough decisions. You've put yourself in the way of risk. And you said yourself you're an adrenaline junkie. So I'm guessing you have a pretty good relationship with fear at this point, that fear isn't in the driver's seat of your life. Is that correct? Fear is not in the driver's seat of my life. For whatever reason... I'm not a very fearful person. I think if I fear anything, it's a lack of productivity. You know, it's it's sort of not having things to do, being alone in the world. I mean, I think that that's a fear. But in terms of the fear of of failure, 
I don't really have that. I think that <laughs> expect <laughs> expect to fail and you know, and then you know, then, you know if, if you expect that, you know, don't go in thinking everything's going to work out. You don't know. You do the best you can, and you. I think that I'm very, very good at being present in the moment in terms of decision making. Mm. I don't dwell on what happened yesterday as a decision. The decision didn't go the way I wanted it to go. It's done. It's over. It's like you can't go back. The one thing we, we can get, we lose all of our money, we can get money back. We lose our lover, we can get a different lover. We can, you know, you, you, know, you can lose, 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 but, you can, but the one thing you can never get back is time. Don't try. Time you can't get back. So, so be present in the day and be, and, and be conscious of tomorrow, but be present of today. And yesterday, that's in the rear view mirror. Like, you can't do anything about that. Well, there's so many people listening right now who are crippled by fear and who are letting fear drive their life. And I think that that's a great, simple tactic is just to stay present and know you can almost always recover. You can. You know, you can recover. And and the fact of the matter is decisions in life is a lot more complicated than we take it to be. So you get into this habit of thinking like, if only I had done this. But if you had done that, then X, Y, Z may not have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if I had just up and run to L.A. and not come back to Chicago, well, then I don't have the relationship I ended up having with my father. I don't have, I don't do, you know, my first show. I don't end up doing Stomp. I mean, I don't end up with my own company. I mean, it seemed insane at the time. And I was gnashing my teeth at this waste of time that I was dragged to Chicago when I had, quote, things to do in Los Angeles. But at the same time, that path was, you know, I may have ended up, being at a studio or running a studio or whatever, but I wouldn't have ended up directing my own movies. And do you think that there is anything to you being in the place where people loved you at a base level? Like, I think it's very powerful to go back home and just have that as your foundation because you know, no matter what, if you fall, you still have that love. There's no question that's true. There's no question. But that doesn't mean that if you don't have it, that you can't get get there no. as well. And you can create your own family. But and I'm just saying, can. like, I do recommend to people a lot of time if they're feeling lost Go back home, even if it's just for a few weeks. That's for sure true. Yeah. That's for sure true. I mean, I think that the sense of grounding is, you know, if that's where you, if, wherever you get sustenance from is what you have to appreciate. Right. So to wrap things out here, Jim, I believe creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And we talked about little Jim earlier in the first time in the third grade when he stepped out on stage so proudly And I'm wondering if you and your younger self were standing in the same room looking at each other, what do you think he would say to you today and why? I think he'd be pretty surprised that I've been able to do as much as I've done. I think I came from, you know, I grew up about 25 miles outside of Chicago in a family that didn't have anyone who was doing this. You know, we we probably went downtown to see plays maybe a couple times a year maybe so I think that I think that I had a kind of yearning to get out and do more or do something which you know was inbred in some weird way so I think he would be I think he would say you done good and what would you say to him and why I think that I would say hang in have a little faith have a little strength Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Jim Stern. For more info on Jim and his work, 
check out his company, Endgame Entertainment, at endgameent, that's endgameent.com. Thanks to Liz Full for composing this show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe. Follow the show on Spotify. And if you really love the show, take a screenshot of yourself listening to it and post it to your Twitter or Instagram and tag the show and at Lauren LaGrasso and I will repost. Don't forget my single Road to Glory is out now. You can download it wherever good music is found. I'm also playing a live show at Bar 20 on Sunset Boulevard on the 16th of December at 8.15 p.m. I'd love to see you there. My wish for you this week is that you finish what you start and you always keep going. I believe in you. Talk next week.